We broke up, he says. When I opened the front door in my robe and slippers. But he's not disheveled or anything. He says it as though he happens to be in the neighborhood. And he's dropping by because he forgot his umbrella. I'm the first to know. I've always been the first to know. It lasted three years, I say. No way can I be as casual as him about it, but I try, nonetheless. Yeah, he sighs. We met at that party by the lake. Whose house was it again? He throws himself down on the sofa. Susie's, I answer. I can see he's reminiscing. The coffee's still hot, so I go to the kitchen and return with two mugs. I've also tucked a bottle of cognac under my arm. You thought it was just another fling, I say. It's ten in the morning. Is cognac a good idea, he asks, yawning. He didn't sleep much. It's Sunday, I reply with a shrug. He hesitates, shrugs as well, gets up, and pulls two glasses off the shelf. In Normandy, they mix coffee and Calvados. Did you know that? He asks. No, I've never been to Normandy. Have you? No, he says, throwing himself back down on the sofa. I haven't either. He's what? 25 years younger than you, right? I ask. Yeah, 24 actually. I guess he had to turn a new leaf. Some guy who admires him so much it's insane. Well, I say, he probably needs someone who constantly looks up to him, and you weren't like that, were you? Hell no. I was the father figure. Three years as the father figure should be enough, I say with a half smile. Yeah, whatever. We should visit Normandy together, now that we're both single, he says. Hey, how you doing? You're listening to the Muffy Drake Podcast. My name is Bobo, and I'm your host. I'm a, I'm an orangutan, and I live in the Paris Zoo. You know, people ask me when they find out that I can talk, Hey, what's it like to spend all your time on the inside of a cage looking out? And I always answer the same way. Let me ask you something. I, uh, I've been going online recently and reading all about what's, what's happening with you and your planet. And how is your cage? The one you've constructed out of hate and fear of your fellow humans. I know, I know, kind of, kind of heavy stuff, but you can only imagine how maddening it can be for me sometimes. I mean, after all, I am somewhat of a captive audience, and every Sunday afternoon, I get so many zoo patrons wanting to book time with me. You know, oh yeah, that's what they do. They actually, they're actually, the zoo, the zookeeper has me, has me booked every Sunday all afternoon with the zoo patrons to talk about the arts, you know, world literature, politics. And last Sunday, it was no exception. I had this couple booked in. They wanted to talk about one of 
Stanley Kubrick's films. We, we know which one, of course. 2001, A Space Odyssey. What else? And they wanted to hear my thoughts on the monolith scene in the film and, and, and all the monkeys going ape shit. So, so they proceed to tell me their interpretation of the scene and what the monolith symbolizes. You know, something about the depiction of perfection to somehow stimulate the brains of these sentient beings to reach a higher level of consciousness, <laughs> whatever. So I'm listening. At least it's something, you know, I'm, I'm interested in. Last week, the same couple, they wanted to talk, and I mean talk nonstop about Truffaut. You know, it was Truffaut this, Truffaut that. Did, did, did I see Jules and Jim? Jeez, did I see Jules and Jim? Are you kidding me? Really? Ah, anyway, back to 2001. I asked them, did they read the book by Arthur Clarke? Well, no, they said. We've only seen the film. We didn't know it was a book. Actually, the book came out after the film, but I digress. It was in that moment I knew I had them with their mouths wide open like a brook trout, and I was getting ready to present the fly and set the hook deep. I proceed to tell them that in the book, it wasn't a monolith. Do you want to know what it was? I ask them. Oh, they're eager to hear. I tell them it was a monorail. A really nice one, too. Shiny and metallic and really, really fast. In the book, I continue, the monkeys climb aboard the monorail and proceed to figure out how to operate the train. Incidentally, some red conductor outfits were laid out for this new crew to wear, and you can only imagine how happy they all were to try them on and, and smoke the Cuban cigars that had been placed on the many silver trays throughout the cars. You should really read the book, I tell them. It's not quite as nuanced as a film with the monolith and all. Dead silence. They looked completely nonplussed, totally out of their intellectual comfort zone. Somehow, I had challenged their perception of reality and what they knew to be timeless and true in the cinema. And it was at that moment that I realized I was the monolith, the provocateur, pushing them to expand the horizons of what is possible. And do you know what they did next? <laughs> oh, jeez. They started jumping up and down and running back and forth outside my cage. Oh, jeez. Oh, right paw to God. True story. You can't make stuff like that up. Paul Bell, play us out of here. I gotta go see a man about a monkey. My little house in the winter. I like it a lot. It's cozy. I feel comfortable in it. It's in the suburbs, and what I especially like is the backyard. When the previous owner showed me around, he said, 
This is a forsythia. It's the first to blossom. And what are the colors of the flowers? I asked. I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to plants, you see. I spent my whole life in Paris, near that one cemetery. You know the one. The one where Oscar Wilde, Chopin, and Jim Morrison are buried. If you want, some other time, I'll tell you about Texas Radio and the Big B. It comes out of the Virginia swamps, soft, and slow, and mad, and it ends up in Across the street from where I live. Anyway, he looks at me and says, Bah, elles sont jaunes, bien sûr. Vous saviez pas? Tout le monde sait ça. As though I'm an idiot because I don't know they are yellow. You learn something every day, even when you're retired like me. I used to be a molecular biologist. I can tell you about the DNA of the forsythia and the amino acids and the peptides, but I don't know the colors of the flowers. That's just the way it is. C'est la vie. Then he shows me a tree and says, This is a eucalyptus. It's still young, but it will grow and become very, very tall. He says it in such a way it feels threatening. And on top of that, he says, Don't prune it, or you will kill it. Don't prune it, or you will kill it. He says it twice, as though I look like I've been dreaming of pruning a eucalyptus tree, and that's why I'm buying the house, when in fact he just put his finger on the very last thing I have on my mind. And then he shows me two plants with Leonis against the garden wall. And he says, those are two kiwi plants. They're called actinidias. Well, I was just getting used to forsythia. And now it looks like I'm going to have to take a crash course in Latin. Never mind the real name. Two kiwis, I say to myself. So... I settle into the house, and it's nice and warm by the fireplace. I can read my books and do a little bit of writing. I've started to write a crime novel, you know, that's set in Paris in the 1960s, by the way. And it's a short walk to town. I like it in my new home. When the spring comes, every morning, I look out the window. And I watch the birds in the birdhouse I put out there. I look at the forsythia, and one day, sure enough, the blossoms are there, and they are yellow. I'm glad the owner didn't lie to me. I hate it when you can't trust people. And then, the eucalyptus starts having leaves, and it seems to be growing, although I'm not really sure. And the other two plants, the kiwis, they just wait and wait, and wait, until one day, there are big green 
leaves and flowers that are beautiful. I'm really happy. When I go to the market that afternoon, I walk by the fruit stand and I see some kiwis. But I figure I don't need to buy any because I'm going to have some in my backyard soon. But the weeks go by. The flowers go away, and there are no kiwis. The big green leaves are beautiful and strong, but there are no kiwis at all, not even one. I'm somewhat puzzled, and when I go back to the fruit stand, I tell the lady who is selling the fruit, and she says, I'll never have any kiwis because those plants I have, they are both female. She says I should plant a male kiwi plant, and then I'll have some fruit. Weeks go by. I think things over, and I figure, no. Those two females, they're happy together, just as they are. They don't need a male or fruit to bother them. They have beautiful flowers and big, sturdy leaves. I'm happy to watch them as they twist their lianas in and out like a double helix of DNA as they climb up the wall and shoot for the sky. They're carefree and I'd love to watch them because I've always tried to be carefree too, especially since I retired. And now when I'm in the backyard, and whenever I buy some kiwis at the fruit stand, I say to myself, I'm glad the owner didn't lie and tell me I would have kiwis. I haven't seen him since he sold the house to me. Sometimes I figure he may be like me. He thinks those two females living together are really unique, and they should be left alone to enjoy themselves. went upstairs to his office to work, my mother turned on the set and she settled into the armchair with a tiny glass of cognac in her hand and a blanket on her lap. I sat on the couch, but I wasn't allowed to watch TV very late. Every evening I could only watch the beginning of the movie. Then I had to get into my pajamas, brush my teeth, and go to my room. When I curled up in bed, I switched off the light, and I imagined the rest of the movie. 
I already had the context of the story, whether it was historical, you know, the revolution, World War II, or it was sci-fi maybe, or criminal investigation, or romance, whatever. And I also already had the lead roles, but I had to create most of the other characters and establish relationships between them. I had to come up with a flaw for the good guy, figure out what the bad guy's intentions were, and then I would have to wrap everything up in a tight plot. On my way to school the next morning, I would put the pieces together and possibly add some elements that had come to me in my dreams. And then I would rehearse because I was going to tell the kids in school who were eager to know what the movie was about. It was like a duty for me. It was a duty because I was the one who was privileged to have Channel 2. They stood in a half circle around me in the schoolyard and I would set the stage, cast the characters, describe the beginning of the story as I had seen it, and then unfold the rest of it as I had imagined it. Uh, how long did it take you to go to school in the morning? We lived in the country and it was a 25-30 minute walk. I assume you didn't have any brothers and sisters and that you walked by yourself. That is a good point. That is correct. How old were you when you started doing this? Oh, I, I don't quite remember, but I was in primary school. Ah, you had the director's cut, in other words. Yes, I never thought of it that way, but yes, so to speak. The director's cut, but after the first 15 or 20 minutes. My mother didn't have to tell me to go to bed. My father always kept the door of his den ajar, and when he saw me head to my room, he would say, Just like clockwork, that's my son. Sweet dreams. After a while, however, most of the kids in school eventually had Channel 2, and everyone could stay up late. But I preferred to continue to go to bed early and finish the movies in my head, even if I didn't have an audience anymore. To this day, I still go to bed early. What kind of work did your father do in the evening? That's a good question. We never knew. But when he died, we found a stack of documents with charts, graphs, and all kinds of equations and calculations. He invented a lawnmower that generated a magnetic field that forced the grass cuttings to fly through the air in a vortex straight to a large metal garden bin. Really? No, I just made that up. He was an accountant. He was constantly behind in his work, so he would finish up at home. How did you know your stories were good? Well, it's not for me to judge, of course. But what I do know is that the kids in school were really very jealous because they thought I was allowed to stay up late. 
surely that wasn't the only reason they listened to you. Actually, I could test whether my listeners were with me if they didn't bat an eyelid when I described the colors of a room or of the character's clothes. That was a little trick I used. Because TV was strictly black and white. Right. Either they didn't take notice, or they just played along. But in any case, I knew they were hooked. You have won multiple awards in your country, as well as a silver bear in Berlin, the jury prize at the Cannes Film Festival, and the award for best director at the Mostra in Venice. This is your first Academy Award. Congratulations. Thank you. Is there any advice you would like to give to young screenwriters or up-and-coming filmmakers? I'm not sure, but I do believe in the force of circumstance. I think you have to make the most of your own experience. And most importantly, don't let anything or anyone get in the way of your imagination. Because your imagination is the result of your experience. It's yours. And the stories we tell are the result of our imagination. Precisely. Never neglect the power of imagination. You've been listening to the Buffy Drake Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Bobo. In case you've forgotten the dulcet tones of my basso profundo mutterings, and I realized that I may have offended some of you with my musings about Truffaut's film, Jules and Jim. Now let me be very clear, I wasn't being dismissive. Of course I liked it. I mean, I mean, come on, it's Truffaut, baby. You just, you just have to put this in context. I'm a captive audience here in my cage for any zoo patron who finds novelty in talking to an orangutan moi about, well, in this case, the French New Wave Cinema. So, I get all the culture vultures on any given Sunday to pay a visit, and I do mean pay. The zookeeper also finds novelty in my gift for Gab, and and actually charges these patrons. Seriously. Uh, Anyway, so my dance card is full every Sunday, and they all want to wax literary and celluloid about books and films they've never read or seen. You know the type. Just the other day, I had some some PhD candidate in a tweed jacket, wearing an ascot, smoking a meerschaum pipe, ask me a philosophical question about, uh, in your in your opinion, does existence precede essence? So I'm sitting there pondering <laughs> this question, and for dramatic effect, I linger in the moment. Take a deep breath and answer, does existence precede essence? Not in the dictionary, pally boy. 
Oh, jeez. They set him up, and I knock him back. Oh, oh, romance at short notice has always been my specialty. Until next time, au revoir, amigos. Mm-hmm.